In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have a super exciting episode to give to you all. At least, I mean... <laughs> it's exciting. This is exciting. It's ex- I mean, I, we're talking about fucking Trump. But you gotta again, talk about Trump. And, but I hate talking about Trump. But I love talking about Trump. But I hate talking about Trump. <laughs> but I love that I hate talking about Trump. And I hate that I love talking about Trump. And fuck Trump, I hate this. I feel like that we're is... We're talking about the Trump indictment. Yeah, that is definitely America's relationship with the trump show i think yeah it's just like <laughs> yes but we're we're the prospect trump not the prospect trump so true although when you type out the perspectrum podcast it definitely says trump in there yeah. uh, if you do make it all yeah. one word so that's a little well that's because we started the podcast like when he was like right i think it was like right in the middle of the impeachment hearings uh something like that i don't really um, remember it was so like we ago. were so like first segment was always like Trump mm. impeachment. We're just like, fuck. Yeah, shit. there was a period where we just talked about Trump impeachment for forever. And that was just the first time. And we, we barely even touched on it the second time he got impeached. But yeah. we've been talking yeah. about like all of his indictments because it's actually the closest we've ever gotten to him potentially yeah. seeing some consequences for his terrible actions. So that's yeah. at least something. Yeah. And for our second segment, I promise you we will be doing a subject that is completely devoid of Trump Mm -hmm. in every possible measure of the word and the sense of the word of the man, whatever. We will be talking about vacancy taxes Mm. and what the hell that is. Yeah. Yeah. And if that sounds boring, it's not. It's a policy deep dive. (laughs) The classic perspective policy deep dive. Yeah. It's a classic prospection policy deep dive. So make yeah. sure you stick around for that. But first, let's talk about the damn indictment. <laughs> yeah. And so, in case in, in case any of you are thinking, wait a minute, didn't you already do a segment on the recent Trump indictment? No, no, no. We're talking about the more recent Trump indictment. We're not talking about the other Trump indictment. We're talking about the newest Trump indictment. Mm -hmm. And when the indictment comes down from Fulton County, Georgia, that will be a different indictment, (laughs) which we might have to do another segment about. But this one, this one is, in my opinion, this one so far is like the most important Trump indictment that we've seen so far. So last week, uh, special counsel Jack Smith released the indictment of Donald Trump from a grand jury specifically for his alleged plot to overthrow the 2020 election. Who, by Um, the way, he is a holdover from the Trump administration and he has been responsible for prosecuting several high profile Democrats in the past. mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and put the baby to rest on this is some partisan hack who just loves Democrats and is a total socialist. No, this is a Republican who has prosecuted Democrats in the past. Yeah. And he's a special counsel because that means he gets to operate 
kind of insulated and independent from Biden's DOJ. In, in which is good. Which is good. That's the whole goal, and it and it serves to avoid uh, claims of conflict of interest and politically motivated prosecutions. That is the kind of thing and safeguard that is implemented in, you know, proper democratic republics that respect the rule of law. So the reason I think that this is the most important indictment we've seen of Trump so far, and that it's actually the biggest deal, is that I think this indictment is potentially the most serious and the most politically important. So this directly is about his attempts to subvert the very bedrock democratic ideals and laws that safeguard our democratic republic, which is basically our right to vote and that those votes actually decide our elections. The thing that makes us a democratic republic and not, you know, some other form of government is exactly the thing that Donald Trump was assaulting as in response to losing the 2020 election. But here's the thing, Michael. Any citizen has the freedom of speech to express whether or not they believe they were cheated out of an election. Mm -hmm. Any private citizen can say that the election was stolen. Any official can say that the election was stolen. They can spread that wherever they want. They can discuss it on larger platforms. And in fact, there have been many cases in which plenty of Democrats have, you know, looked at elections and pointed to them and said, hey, that was stolen or that was unfair or the results are tainted. Mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams comes to mind Mm -hmm. when uh, she made accusations in the Georgia election. Hillary Clinton comes to mind when she questioned whether or not it was legitimate that Uh, Donald Trump won via the Electoral College and not via the popular vote. Mm -hmm. The biggest example that comes to mind is Al Gore. Mm -hmm. And all of those Democrats had the right to speak out against the election. But somehow Donald Trump is coming out and speaking out against the election and he's being prosecuted for it. So here's why that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that might be a relevant point, Nathan, if you just read like the first paragraph of the indictment or not the first yeah. paragraph, but the first, you know, one of the first important paragraphs, which is, quote, despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for more than two months following the election day of no- on November 3rd, 2020, the defendant uh, spread lies that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. These claims were false and the defendant knew they were false. So if you're just reading that and you're on Fox News <laughs> not doing your job <laughs> and um, just reading that piece, you might think, wow, I cannot believe that in America, the United States of star-spangled awesome America, we are prosecuting someone for political protected speech. But as Nathan alluded, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> and you know that if you read just, oh, I don't know, to page two of the indictment, yeah. which literally on page two is is pretty easy reading, honestly. Like this is paragraph three. Quote, the defendant had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the election results 
through lawful and appropriate means, such as by seeking recounts or audits of the popular vote in states or by filing lawsuits challenging ballots and procedures. Indeed, in many cases, the defendant did pursue these methods of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. Yes, that's the indictment. That's the prosecutor in this case saying, agreeing with Nathan and agreeing with like Republicans and Trump that you're right. You have a right to talk even falsely about like political things like this. Well, so you might wonder, fuck. Yeah. You might wonder there why. Goes, there goes the entire defensive strategy for right-wing commentators if they had any regard for the truth and had any level of integrity. Yes. Because it is just not about free speech at all. And if you listen to Trump, if you listen to right-wing commentators, they're trying to make this whole issue about persecution. Not prosecution, persecution of Trump as a political actor. Yeah. Um, But it's pretty easy to dispel those claims, and I want to just quickly get through them. Because, like, yes, like, Jack Smith acknowledges it in the indictment, and that would be pretty fucking dumb. If you were, you know, the prosecutor and you specifically say, yeah, the defendant had the right to do all the things that the defendant did and that I'm charging him for. But the thing is, he's not being charged for his speech, at least not any like any protected political speech. His speech is being used as evidence, but it's not what he's being charged with. Exactly. Exactly. That's like. I think that's so important. So there are all kinds of speech that can be a component to a crime. And we accept those very reasonably. And we don't really think of them as limitations on free speech, but crimes that can involve speech, which may seem like a little distinction. So let me let me put it this way. Um, if I very publicly said, I hate Michael and mm-hmm. I'm going to murder him, and then two weeks later, Michael turns out dead. Most likely, if if I were to be arrested for that, the prosecutors would use me saying, I hate Michael and I want him dead in that trial as proof. As evidence, yes. As, as evidence that, uh, that I was the perpetrator. Exactly. And what it would be evidence for is a motive or an intention yeah. to do something. And so exactly. I think that's like a really great and clear example. And it's an example that shows up in all kinds of crimes that involve speech. So basically, the, the, the important combination is like speech as evidence, spoken at certain times and in certain contexts that when paired with a particular state of mind for which the speech is evidence, become criminal. Like yeah. perjury, for example, or fraud, or conspiracy. Like, yeah. it's not illegal to lie. But you can't lie to Congress or to officials or in a court of law. If that's you're perjury. Oath. If you're under oath, exactly. And you can't lie on legal documents. That's fraud, right? And and it's not illegal to say, to Nathan's point, we should rob a bank. But if you get together with your buddies and agree to rob a bank and start plotting, that's a conspiracy to rob a bank. In which case, the speech is a component it can be a component of the crime and it's not criminalizing the speech. It's the speech as evidence for the crime taking place and often as evidence for intention to take an action, right? To intention to do 
a, a, a crime or yeah. So like the idea that like Trump is being prosecuted or persecuted for his political speech is insane. As soon as you start reading any of the things that he's actually being prosecuted for. Like an undergraduate reading. And, you know, I define an undergraduate reading as reading like maybe the first page or the second page <laughs> and then skimming a few uh, words here and there of the rest of the document. An undergraduate reading of this document shows you that that's wrong. Like yeah. shows you that it has nothing to do with that. And again, I the reason why we're harping on this so much is because this is the entire defensive strategy mm -hmm. of Trump in the court of public opinion and right wing commentators on Fox News, on One American News Network, on the Daily Wire mm -hmm. that are that are, that they're using to actively try to defend Trump. Yeah, and it is one of those things that is so easily disprovable that you have to question the motives of the people that are spreading it. Obviously yeah. you can question the motives of Trump, mm -hmm. but you have to also, you also have to acknowledge the fact that if people are leaving out that vital piece of information, when they talk about this case, even if they are, you know, when, when they are speaking in, in favor of Trump, those are people that you can't trust mm -hmm. because they are actively trying to lie to you. And I want to be clear about this. The reason why Trump is doing this, the reason why Trump is using this line of attack is because he knows that there is a large group of people in the United States that are going to just accept it at face value without yeah. a simple Google search. Yeah. Because what he's trying to do is not tell you the truth, not try to argue against the actual indictment argue against the actual charges piece by piece, break them down and say, here's why I'm innocent. What mm -hmm. he's trying to do is he's trying to win the court of public opinion so that he wins the presidency and he can pardon himself. Yes. That's exactly. the strategy. Yeah. Because totally. he believes at this point that the only way he's going to stay out of jail, and he's probably right about this, is by becoming president and either using the you know, in, forcing the Justice Department to shut down the investigations or by pardoning himself or some combination of the two. Mm -hmm. And the reason why right-wing commentators are going along with it is either because they also unapologetically want Trump to win because, you know, of their, their sycophantic towards him or because his base has such a lock mm -hmm. on, like, all of right-wing politics that if they speak out against Trump, they're afraid that they're going to lose their career or mm -hmm. lose their audience. Yeah. That's why they're doing it, and that's why Trump's doing it. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to talk about this. As much as we yeah. loathe to like dive into yet another Trump crime, and as much as we've already talked about, you know, we talked about the January 6th like, commi like, committee and, and investigation in Congress. Like We've talked about these issues a lot. But it's, it's, it's critically important that we shut down some of these disingenuous arguments and that you, listener, when people tell you these arguments, shut them down as well because yeah. it's, it's really important that he not become president again. And he will yeah. and his base will stick with him almost certainly. And it's going to be all on the people in the middle to decide the election. And if he can yeah. credibly make an argument to those people that this is corruption 
or that this is not fair, or that, you know, he is not a criminal, and therefore they get him elected, then, like, things are going to get way worse. Not only will he pardon himself, like, there's almost no way that, like, the right-wing political organization doesn't further corrupt our democracy and potentially really destroy like fundamental bedrock principles of of enfranchisement yeah okay so with we should probably talk about said, the accounts yeah i was, yeah, I was, I was about <laughs> to say yeah with with all of that being said let's go ahead and actually lay out what is being alleged here and yep. what he's being accused of yep one thing to call out about these is that multiple of these charges have already been brought successfully against actors and organizers of the january 6th insurrection and people in like the network around like or, organizers and, and and people like like uh, contributing to that, so it's not like this is like crazy out of left field, and that there's no way these charges could stick. We've already seen them apply to people depending on their different roles in the insurrection. So count one: conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, this applies to Trump's repeated and widespread efforts to spread false claims about the 2020 election knowing that they weren't true and uh, allegedly attempting to illegally like discount or delegitimize votes in an effort to overturn that election. So this is like, this covers things like the fraudulent electors scheme, which is where they organized slates of alternate, like of, of alternate electors who were planning to like, claim that they were legitimate electors perjure themselves in the process um and submit those like ballots um to congress fraudulently and so to conspire to organize these people and take steps to encourage them and facilitate their crime which would be defrauding the united states of legitimate of like the legal documents attesting to their status as electors and the slate of electors elected according to their state laws um is a pretty fucking clear crime and part of the evidence of this conspiracy is all of the organization that went into organizing all those people all of the you know facilitation of you know, big lie claims that serve to convince people and even trick people and lie to potential false electors about the status of um, like the legal cases involved in getting them to submit uh, false slates of electors. Yeah. On top of that, there was also an instance where Trump had pressured officials in the justice department to send letters Mm -hmm. to uh, various different States, um, mainly, mainly the the swing States that uh, decided the election falsely claiming that the U.S. Justice Department had a reason to believe that there were irregularities in the 2020 election and basically using that as a uh, as a justification for trying to push those fake electors. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And again, that is making a false claim in your official capacity as the chief executive that one of your agencies has found evidence of irregularities and Mm -hmm. using that authority to 
push for states to help you overthrow the election. Yeah. That is a crime. Yeah. Yeah, you can't try to trick states or convince states to take illegal action. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. That's <laughs> that's attempting to defraud or, or to obstruct official proceeding or defraud the, the United States. It, it defrauded yeah. in the case of like actually lying to those states. Yeah. On top of that, um, also included in uh, the indictment is Trump's attempts to pressure Mike Pence mm -hmm. into not certifying the election on mm -hmm. January 6th. And on top of that, this is something that I think is actually new information because I don't I don't think this had ever previously come out the night of January 6th or, or like hours after the January 6th uh, riots, he called legislators mm -hmm. in the House of Representatives to pressure them yeah. into rejecting the election and trying yeah. to cite the violence on January 6th as basically mm -hmm. a, a random excuse. Yeah. So again, he is, he is interfering. He is using his power as the president's, uh, the power of the presidency to interfere with an official, uh, official election proceeding. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. It's, it's so obviously a crime when you put it that way. And it's like the Electoral Count Act like says when the certification has to take place. It lays out how it has to take place. And so attempting to obstruct or actually obstructing the lawful administration of a proceeding that has to occur, it legally must occur, is clearly an attempt to or actual obstruction of an official proceeding. And when you organize all your cronies to try to do the same thing, that's conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Those are yeah. two of the counts in this indictment. And they're so clearly like laid out and, and true, not just according to the indictment itself, but according to everything that we already fucking know about Trump's behavior leading up to the January 6th insurrection. Like yeah. that's the, that's the crazy thing about this. No one is contesting that this thing these things didn't happen. Like no one Trump is not saying like oh, no, I didn't try to, you know, pressure the the Congress or the Justice Department or Mike Pence to overturn the election. What he's claiming is I thought that I could do that. That's yeah. his that's his best legal defense. The problem is yeah. as is clearly laid out in the indi indictment, he didn't. Yeah. And on top of that, he knew he didn't. Yes, exactly. That's the that's the other that's the other kicker cuz like he is still going out there claiming that the election was stolen. Yeah. He still which by the way is just further evidence that they that the prosecution can use mm -hmm. uh in terms of the in terms of the entire conspiracy. But like one of the points that they that they make it a point to say is that Donald Trump knew that it wasn't stolen. Yeah. And the evidence that they lay out is that there were various people with direct knowledge of um, of the claims, whose jobs it it was to actually investigate the claims, to look at the claims, and to advise the president, who all said, "Hey, bro, this is bullshit." Mm -hmm. So it lays out the vice president, senior leaders of the Justice Department, the director of national intelligence. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, senior White House attorneys, senior staffers uh, on the defendant's reelection campaign, state legislators and officials, state and federal courts, the ones that he took his cases to in almost every single case rejected it. So 
you had all of these people who were either a part of the investigation or uh, a part of determining like uh, a part of determining whether or not the uh, fraud actually happened, who all were telling him this is not ha- this did not happen. There was no widespread voter fraud. The election was not fraudulent. And yet he still knowingly knowing that that was false, tried to overturn the election. Yeah, exactly. So some people who are dedicated to Trump might try to make the argument, yeah, 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 they all told him this, but, you know, maybe he didn't believe them. Or maybe there were also some people whispering in his ear that this actually was legal. So there were some people floating legal theories trying to make the claim that some of this was legal. Uniformly, these were clearly rejected by people in positions of authority, lawyers, the Justice Department, all these people, like, saying, like, no, these are, in fact, not legal. Um, But maybe, you know, these people might claim that Trump is, like, not really smart enough to be able to parse through those things and was going to rely on the very stretched legal theories of the people most dedicated to trying to keep him in office. Now, best case scenario, that's an argument that Trump's pretty much a dumbass, um, so I don't know why that supports him being president, but maybe it supports him not being criminal. Yeah. Except for the fact that there are pieces of evidence in the indictment that indicate Trump's like specific kind of state of mind relative to his knowledge about this. There were some cases where he actually referred to the fact that like that Biden had won. On like January 3rd, he was given a briefing by, uh, I think it was the Department of Defense, about uh, a foreign policy issue. And he was like, ah, that's Biden's problem. I'm out. That's not a direct quote. But like, it clearly indicates that he is aware that he is no longer going to be president. In addition, on January 1st, you know, he's, he's attempting to, again, yell at Pence into going along with uh, not certifying the election, something that Pence has repeatedly refused to do and said that he clearly does not have the right to do. Again, reminding the president that it, that is not something that he has the power legally to do. And Trump says to Pence, quote, you're too honest. Hmm. <laughs> um, and then proceeds to tweet out about how people have to come out to the rally on January 6th and all that stuff. Nathan, when someone is telling you the truth, that you think is true and that you agree with, um, do you usually tell them that they're too honest? Not not generally, no. Not generally. <laughs> generally, you'd only tell someone if they were too honest if they were if their honesty was getting in your way. In yeah. the way of your dishonesty, for example. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's so it it's it's definitely a, a knowing conspiracy. Now, like at this point, I don't know if he's so much of a pathological liar that he actually does believe this now. Yeah. But clearly at the time he didn't. Yeah. Um, like he, he might've, he might be truly deranged to the point where he has convinced himself that he actually won, but like he, he did not think that at the time. And the indictment clearly shows that. And what mm-hmm. I think is really interesting about this indictment is I remember us covering all of this stuff as it was happening. And mm-hmm. I remember like, in almost every instance, just being like, how the fuck is this not a crime? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember yeah. Yeah. like specifically saying like, like, like when he, when he did the phone call with Georgia and, and said like, mm-hmm. find me 11,000 uh, votes. I was mm-hmm. like, 
if that's not illegal, it really should be. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this indictment is like he key, he lays out key parts that we all kind of watched happen in real time. And we all were kind of like, how, how is that? Okay. Like how yeah. is, how is this not breaking the law? And he says, well, actually it is breaking the law because you're interfering with an official proceeding. And it's like, Oh, so I'm not fucking crazy. Yeah, exactly. It's just that the law <laughs> moves really fucking slowly. <laughs> and that's, and I think that's another part that, that Trump has been using as mm-hmm. part of his defense. Basically it's been two and a half years since, uh, you know, since he left the white house. Why did it take this long for the, uh, you know, for the indictment to, to come out? Um, Part of that goes along with the idea that he believed, or he is claiming, I should say, mm-hmm. that this is just about election interference for the 2024 election. And the reason why they waited so long to do this indictment is so that the trials and the potential prosecutions and the potential uh, um, sentencing would happen around the time as the election, uh, around the same time as the election. Mm-hmm. So what's kind of interesting is that. Smith actually kind of, I th- I think he kind of like indirectly addresses that because right now the prosecution is asking for a really, a, a speedy trial on this. They, they mm-hmm. want this trial to go to, to set off, uh, this January or this, this coming January, which in terms of, uh, major court cases, that's pretty soon. Yeah, for sure. Uh, other, other court cases, other indictments, that we've talked about in the past are subsequently going to happen in March and in May. Um, but they're hoping to do this in January. And part of it is because Jack Smith is basically making the argument that because this is such an egregious issue that is regarding the integrity of American democratic elections and the very bedrock of democracy, this is something that needs to happen as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Now he's not, he doesn't directly it doesn't seem like he's directly acknowledging the fact that this is something that people should, you know, the outcome of this court case is something that people should know mm-hmm. for the election. But I'm going to go ahead and say it. This, the outcome of this court case is something that people should know before the election goes off, because we're talking about somebody who is being charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States conspiracy to, uh, to overturn a democratic election. Yeah. Seems like somebody who is running in a democratic election, you know, should we should we should know where they stand on that. We should know <laughs> whether where, the, where any the rejections are legit, legitimate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so so I think it makes absolute sense for this to go off right now. And yeah, to some extent, that might be a political question. But I mean, we're talking about the future of democracy here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the legitimacy of democracy here. Yeah. We're talking about somebody that does not believe in democracy, does not care about democracy, allegedly. And that needs to be in people's minds when they're voting, because mm-hmm. it might be the last time you vote. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So, okay. A couple other things we definitely have to touch on just pretty fast. Um, this, So we've already touched on three of the four counts, right? Uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding um, and the obstruction of or attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. And the last one, which we haven't touched on, is conspiracy against rights, which refers to Trump and his co-conspirators 
alleged attempts to oppress, threaten, and intimidate people, um, and you know deprive them of their right to vote and or to have those votes counted. So this is essentially like like voting protection law yeah. um, from you know the Reconstruction era, essentially, that is designed to make sure that people are not disenfranchised either by overt threats or intimidation or by um, their votes being counted uh, differently from other people's votes. And that's exactly the outcome that would have occurred and was attempted, right? The conspiracy is the organization of people to attempt something illegal, right? Conspiracy against rights. We're seeing the connections here. So the conspiracy to basically take disenfranchise people who voted for Biden in states where Biden won and change the outcome of their votes to be something else. So basically deprive them of their right to have their vote counted equally. Yeah. Basically, if the fake elector scheme had actually come to fruition, then that means that, like, say, in in Wisconsin, that means that the voters in Wisconsin are disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. That means that effectively the decision they made is just thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. That's not okay. Yeah. Exactly. So another another thing that kind of came out as a part of this was a serious attempt um, by the by the Trump group of conspirators to put in place Jeffrey Clark as the uh, mm. U.S. Attorney General uh, and the head of the DOJ in order to because Jeffrey Clark was friendly to um, the efforts to overturn the election, and this was. Um, Jeffrey Clark is like an environmental lawyer. He, he had no business and no qualifications to be uh, the U.S. Attorney General, but his friendliness to Trump's efforts are what qualified him. Um, and this included signaling by Clark that they were potentially like prepared to use the U.S. military to put down protests against the subversion of the election. So basically, the Uh, Quoting from the indictment, the deputy White House counsel reiterated to co-conspirator four that there had not been outcome determinative fraud in in the election and that if the defendant remained in office nonetheless, there would be, quote, riots in every major city in the U.S. And Clark, who's assumed to be co-conspirator four, responded, well, deputy White House counsel, that's why there's an insurrection act. And the Insurrection Act authorized the president to deploy the U.S. military and National Guard forces within the United States in response to civil disorder or rebellion. So this was them saying, we have a plan to use the U.S. military to make sure that when we subvert this election, no one can protest it. Yeah. Let that sink in. Yeah. He is actively saying, he is in no uncertain terms, we are going to steal this election— and if people don't like it, we are going to send the fucking military after them. Yeah. These are fascists. All right. That is not an overstatement. That no. is not like that. That is. That's not an exaggeration. Stealing an election. And putting down people who protest it. Mm-hmm. Fucking fascism. Yeah. Yes. And there's so much more we could say about this indictment. Everybody should read it. This is a historic indictment, and it's only 45 pages long, double-spaced. That's, like, <laughs> not very long. You can read it. Like, everybody yeah. should read this indictment. But one of the things I, I want to emphasize as we, like, close out is that, again, people are not 
and Trump is not really contesting that the things in this indictment that are alleged here didn't happen. There's plenty of evidence from the Jan 6 Commission and the investigation there, from Jack Smith and his investigation, and a grand jury has found that there's enough evidence that these things happened to bring an indictment. There's plenty of evidence that this occurred. So regardless of whether a jury ultimately finds that this escalated to a level of, incro- of, of, to, of a crime and is worthy of imprisonment, these facts, as alleged, which are, again, not disputed by pretty much anybody, should disqualify someone from being the president of the United States. Perhaps not legally. There's no law that would prevent him from being the president of the United States then. But certainly on principle. These are things that are antithetical to the very existence of an elected president in a democratic republic. You shouldn't be able to rule (laughs) and be the head, the legitimate leader of a free nation if you actively work against that nation and its ongoing survival. At this point, Trump being president in a democracy would be like a vegan being a butcher. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Well, Michael, we do Good Actually because the world sucks. Yeah. Boo. Boo world. (laughs) Screw the world. But sometimes, okay. <laughs> if you, sometimes if you look really closely, mm-hmm. you might see that there's behind that big pile of shit mm-hmm. that is the dumbest timeline that we all currently live in. Sure, sure. There's actually something kind of nice behind it. A you little know? or cuter pile of shit. <laughs> exactly. So then you wipe that up and maybe you find a little shiny penny and you're like, hey, I found a penny. Yeah. That's good luck. And it's a heads up penny. And then you look around and you realize, hey, there's actually like pennies all over the place. There's oh pennies God. all over the ground. What is all this? you have to do is is clean up all, like, all the shit, you know, sift through <laughs> the shit and just pick up those pennies. And you realize that good actually is all around us. Worst prospecting ever. <laughs> you know what you get after a day of sifting through poop? Pennies. <laughs> I mean, like, it's legal tender. You sound like a capitalist overlord. <laughs> <laughs> All right, That's Nathan. me. That's me. <laughs> so, Nathan, you uh, capitalist pig, uh, what is our good actually today? Our good actually, it, it concerns a subject that we've talked about on this pod before. So, a panel in the Fifth Circuit Court ruled in a 2-1 decision that Mississippi's uh, state constitution, which uh, bans uh, current and former felons from voting, violates the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, which is a, in regard to cruel and unusual punishment. Now, it is possible that this will be taken to a larger panel, but if this decision holds, 30,000 people in the state of Mississippi who uh, have already served their sentences for felonies will get their right to vote. Mm, awesome. And that is just wonderful. One of the things that's kind of crazy that I, I don't think is talked about nearly enough is that uh, the clause that uh, takes away 
people's right to vote uh, goes back to uh, 1890. Hmm. What was going on in 1890? Jim Crow. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, interesting. So basically, the uh, the provision was adopted into the Constitution around the time of the expansion of black suffrage, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is something that the ruling specifically notes. It says, quote, it was the, the state, quote, adopted it in reaction to the expansion of black suffrage and other political rights during Reconstruction. Basically, the idea was if we can't keep them as slaves, we're going to criminalize the shit out of everything they do and then use that criminalization uh, in order to basically prevent them from being able to vote. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like over-policing, like we talk about over-policing a lot today. It was even worse back then. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, in fact, a lot of the a lot of the uh, a lot of the original law enforcement uh, that the law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement agencies that were created in the United States were originally slave patrol. Hmm. Basically, they're overturning a Jim Crow era disenfranchisement. And if if this does hold, then 30,000 people will have the right to vote again. That is awesome. That is great. And news. that is that is great news. That's really powerful. Uh, we'll we'll see if it if uh, if they appoint a larger panel to look at it. But in the meantime, let's celebrate. Absolutely, absolutely. Good actually is all around us. So for our next segment, we are talking about vacancy taxes. And before you shut off the episode or leave the video. <laughs> Um, if you own a home or rent a home or live anywhere, whether that's living in a home or rental unit, or if you don't have a house, uh, this matters to you. <laughs> this is important <laughs> to you because, um, you may not have heard, but I bet your wallet has that we are facing a housing affordability crisis across the What? Oh, what? Uh, Yes. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. So on average, rent prices have increased by 8.85% per year since the 1980s, well outpacing wage growth. At this point, just 78% of renters pay in full and on time, which makes sense given that in 2020, 46% of American renters paid more than 30% of their income towards housing, with 23% of renters spending at least 50% of their income on housing. And that 30% bar is what the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development defines as, you know, being overburdened by your housing costs. So hmm. ultimately, like, renters in, oh, just over the last five years have seen an 18% increase in their average rent which even outpaces inflation and definitely outpaces wage growth. And so we have this like really big problem where people just can't afford places to live or like renters can't afford places to live. And we see it in home ownership as well. A lot of people are thinking about this issue and thinking about how to solve it. And it's pretty complex. So we wanted to dig into an idea that's kind of getting traction, um, which is around taxing vacant units. Yeah. What's kind of funny is when you first told me about this, Michael, 
my dyslexic my dyslexic brain kind of kicked in and i thought you said vagrancy tax <laughs> and i thought what the fuck they're Dude, taxing you for being homeless i've got this great idea man it's awesome it's called stop and frisk and what you do is <laughs> no uh no that's not what i'm talking about it's vacancy yeah. not vagrancy yeah yeah i know i know um so the idea behind this is that part of the problem, and like like Michael said, it is a complex problem, mm-hmm. which means that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. There are lots of different solutions because there are lots of different problems that are contributing to the issue. I mean, you know, general inflation contributes to the issue. You know, uh, hell, weather contributes to the issue depending yeah. on where you might live. Yeah, totally. um, one thing that contributes to the issue is the fact that you have units that are owned by landlords that are sitting vacant. And you might think, well, why would any landlord want to, uh, you know, want to have a vacant apartment that's just sitting there, not, you know, not incurring income or not, uh, not generating income. And the reason is that because the market is so inflated right now Mm -hmm. that it is difficult to find renters that can actually afford to live in those apartments yeah that the that uh you know for the price that you're charging Mm -hmm. when a renter can afford to do that you let them in but the issue is if you lowered your prices for that apartment in order to attract more renters then you'd also have to lower it for apartments for other people, mm-hmm. for people that can afford to pay. Yeah. And in many instances, landlords have made the financial decision that it is actually more advantageous for them to keep some of their units vacant and continue to charge absorbent prices for their current renters than it would be to lower the prices for everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that represents an issue when we're talking about homelessness and of course a a you know a uh, an inflated renters market yeah totally and it kind of becomes pretty clear when you start thinking about it that way because because the because michael lenz who's an associate professor of urban planning and uh, public policy at ucla described kind of the construction side of the thing like this um in a hot housing market like los angeles uh we're building too many quote-unquote luxury housing units and we're only building for a certain market segment at the very top of the income range and the price range. And we're overbuilding in that sector, and we're not building enough for people who are of lower means. So if we're building too much, a lot of that stock goes unused and remains vacant. And to Nathan's point, it's not hard to make the math go round if you're able to charge you know, 10 or 15% more on one unit than, than like the housing market you know, supports overall to be like, okay, well, I can let a unit go vacant if I can get 10 people to pay 10% more and I'm not going to risk lo- having to lower my my rent costs. So like it's it's described in the housing market as speculation, or at least that's one name for it, which is essentially that you're holding out, hoping that rent will increase, that property values will increase such that overall by not renting it out, you can incur actually more money. And so the theory behind vacancy taxes is essentially attempting to 
incentivize or rebalance that set of incentives to to make it not no longer advantageous to leave a unit empty intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not forcing anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because that's one option, right? They could just say, you know, there's a law that you're not allowed to have units vacant. Or they could say every single apartment building requires this many units to be of this price or something yeah. like that. Like there are like laws that could force uh, outcomes uh, in, into place. But some of the problems with, with laws like that can sometimes be unintended economic consequences, um, like people like, you know, not wanting to build a new building because, you know, or, or not wanting to build a bunch of units or like, you know, it can, it can really adjust the market. One of the good things about a vacancy tax is that generally speaking, builders of new construction are not planning for their units to remain vacant. If they were, yeah. they would build a smaller building that's cheaper to build. Yeah. So like, they're not really like accounting for the cost of vacancy anyway. So when you increase that cost of vacancy, you you actually don't have a problem that a lot of like people that are against vacancy taxes cite, which is that it would actually make the problem worse. So people that are against vacancy taxes will say things like, the real problem with the housing market right now is that there isn't enough new construction and there's overall just a shortage of available places to live. Uh, and we're not building enough new places to live. And so overall, you know, market, you know, supply and demand would cause this to be a supply side problem where the cost of, uh, you know, buying these homes or renting these places it goes up as a result of, you know, lower supply and increased or, you know, stagnant demand. And so they say that if you charge vacancy taxes, you're just going to increase the cost associated with building something. And as a result, you're going to reduce how much building actually occurs, and therefore you're going to make the problem worse. But as I just laid out, like people aren't planning for their buildings to remain vacant. And so it's a post hoc calculation. It's not something they account for when they construct, but it's something that they can account for when they fill the building. Yeah. And one thing to note about this is that it also has, it has been implemented mm -hmm. in places around the world. Yeah. And we have seen some modest success. Yes. And I think and I think that's going to be that's going to be key. important for, you know, for what we like what we kind of alluded to earlier, which is the fact that because this is such a complicated issue, there's no silver, silver bullet. For sure. Um so uh they actually did this in uh in Vancouver in Canada and after doing it between the year of 2017 and 2020, um, the number of vacant homes went from uh, 2,200 to 1,600. And furthermore, the idea behind the tax is you can use the revenue from that tax mm -hmm. to basically try to offset uh, other aspects of, um, you know, of, uh, of housing, other, mm -hmm. other financial constraints of housing. So an analysis of the, of the tax in, of another one in British Columbia, uh, found that within the greater Van Vancouver area, the tax revenue helped to add 18,000 rental units to the market. Mm -hmm. And that was between the year of 2019 and 2020. 
Yeah. So we've definitely seen some modest success. Now, mm -hmm. to be clear, the the thing that this the the main problem that this claims to solve is the problem with rental prices. Yes. Yeah. And so far, there hasn't been a lot of evidence that that particular area is actually being affected. Mm -hmm. Now, it has allowed for more rental units to be built, and it has reduced the number of vacant homes, or at least... I should probably I should probably say because you know so we don't get into the correlation versus causation debacle. Mm -hmm. um, these changes have coincided yes. with each other. Yeah, you know it, I I should probably say that these changes have coincided with each other, which means there's a very good chance that one did cause the other. Mm -hmm. But even if we are saying that one did cause the other, so far there hasn't been a lot of evidence that it's actually reduced overall pricing, but mm -hmm. it has increased the amount available. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think the point about revenue is a key one as well. Like in cases where there's a lot of like vacant units for this kind of reason, you can, as a government, like take that revenue and figure out what the best thing to do with it is. If you've got a hot housing market like Vancouver, and I was just there a few months ago, the the portion like the the population of people on the street that I saw was stunning. Yeah. It was like it was perspective shifting. Um yeah. similar in in Los Angeles, you've got incredibly high prices and plenty of vacant properties um but yet people live on the street. And so like when you've got those combination of factors, you can take that revenue and go and put it into the housing market and invest in more low income housing and or into, you know, direct homes for people that don't have have homes at that time. And so like I think that's like a pretty powerful potential benefit of this, even if it doesn't directly contribute or it doesn't like causally or or clearly contribute to the lower to lower overall rents. You can attack like kind of the worst off that are experiencing this problem yeah yeah and this has also been approved in uh in san francisco and berkeley mm -hmm. california yeah and so far it's i would say it it so far it looks like it's too early mm -hmm. to really be able to judge how much of an impact that's had on the market so far yeah but one thing that i think should be noted is something that you know michael made a reference to which is the fact that a lot of the units that are being built a lot of the new units that are being built are not lower income yes. units, yeah. uh, not lower income housing. They're more luxury houses, mm -hmm. which the big, the, the people that need housing the most at this point are those lower income individuals. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of, what a lot of experts are looking at this and saying is that, well, okay, yes, the, uh, the idea of a vacancy tax could potentially have an impact uh, it's had some modest improvements in, you know, in, in Canada, but the biggest issue is the fact that there's just not enough low income housing to begin with. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, a broader solution that could still like, could still work alongside a vacancy tax is you got to build more units. Yes. You got to totally. do more building. Yeah. Yeah. And, and more building in this price range. So ultimately a vacancy exactly. tax is what, what it is, is a market correction to to push down the the cost of housing when there's excess supply 
in in yeah. the market, but ultimately, or excess supply at a at a price point, because that's a key part of this, um, yeah. is that price point. So you push down the price of those units um, by making it more expensive to not fill them. But to Nathan's point, there's no housing solution that doesn't involve building more units. But one thing that I thought was really interesting, I, I saw a lot of arguments about like construction, construction, construction is the solution, and I think that's right. But I think like vacancy taxes can be a really useful part of yeah. the solution because like if if a counter argument if if the whole housing and affordability crisis is driven by new con- by the lack of sufficient construction is basically saying well housing vacancy rates have gone down significantly which they have they they were um vacancy rate for rental units was about 10% in 2010. At the end of 2021, it was 5.6%. And in Q2 2023, so our last recorded data, it's at 6.3%, which is like not that high. That's actually like a pretty normal amount of vacant rental units. At the same time, though, that comes out to about 15 million vacant units as of last quarter, 2023. Like, there's an estimate of, according to the National uh, Low-Income Housing Coalition, there's an estimated shortage of about 7.2 million affordable, available rental homes uh, for low-income renters. So we have enough housing to provide to those people. And in and in Detroit, which has the, one of the, is a city with one of the largest ratios of vacant homes to unhoused people, there's 116 empty homes per unhoused person. Yeah. So, like, I get, I, I agree that, like, new construction has to be part of the solution. But, like, there really is something going on here where we have vacant units that can be filled. And one of the good things about a vacancy tax is, like, typically the way they're constructed is if they are vacant for a certain amount of time. So, like, proposed ordinances in places in California are like 182 days. Basically, if they're if they're vacant for a significant amount of time such that it indicates that people might intentionally be leaving them vacant, that's when the tax kicks in. And if there's no vacancies, then that's then a vacancy tax is not the solution, but then they don't pay the vacancy tax. So it's actually like a really nice market correction that has no yeah. really deleterious impact if there's not a vacancy problem. But when there is significant vacancies, significant long-term vacancies, it kicks in and helps incentivize lower costs and getting people into homes. So it's a pretty nuanced policy that actually like might have a pretty nice impact, but I totally agree with you, Nathan. It's not the silver bullet. There's just not enough yeah. homes for a vacancy tax to be the silver bullet. So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, a miscellaneous what the fuck. So, Nathan, what the fuck's a miscellaneous what the fuck? Well, I'll tell you what the fuck a miscellaneous what the fuck is. So, every now and then, a story comes our way that is just hilarious. But the problem is, we have a segment for Asshat of the Week, which is dedicated to people who are truly heinous individuals. Mm -hmm. And we have a segment for Dershowitz bags, for people who, uh, an award for people that just make really stupid ass arguments but until you know until we developed this segment we didn't have a a name for a segment where we could just look at it and laugh at it 
something that's miscellaneous that just makes you say, what the fuck? So, Michael, <laughs> what is our miscellaneous what the fuck this week? Dude, this is a good one. Uh, it is not it, so often. Miscellaneous what the fucks or asshats or d-bags come from people at the fringes. You know, we yeah. got common conservative commentators or we got like Trump's priest or something like (laughs) (laughs) but this one comes from the heart the heart Mm. of our governance so let's lay the backstory so back in june republicans voted to censure representative adam schiff a democrat from california um and democrats stood on the house floor shouting shame at their gop colleagues for censuring adam schiff during while all this was going on a representative Eric Swalwell, uh, who's a Democrat from California, was standing near the speaker's podium where our good friend Kevin McCarthy does his job. And apparently, uh, Swalwell uh, leans over to McCarthy and tells him, this is pathetic. You're, you're weak. You're a weak man. And there's actually like video that you can watch of him calling McCarthy weak. And apparently McCarthy was fucking pissed about this. And like uh, one one uh, person, like one person that was there, like said that McCarthy had, quote, he had a vein popping out of his head. So up until this point in the story, this has not been very funny. It's weird, <laughs> <laughs> but it would not normally make it on our show. But then yeah. the next see, day. See, see when, I, when I hear that. Yeah. Like I just, I just imagine McCarthy turning to Eric Swalwell and kind of like a Marty McFly style, and be like, <laughs> "Nobody calls me weak." <laughs> well, that is what happened the next day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is a big day in the house, right? We've got Indian Prime Minister Modi visiting Capitol Hill uh, for a joint address to Congress, right? Like this is like a high pressure scenario. And just before Modi takes the speaker podium, Swalwell's on the House floor uh, and heading towards the bathroom. McCarthy heads over to him. And this is according to witness reports reported by the Daily Beast. McCarthy says to Swalwell, if you ever say something like that to me again, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) So again, that's pretty fucking crazy. Just threatening another house member on the floor in front of the Prime Minister of India. <laughs> but then shit gets crazier. Gets, wait, it gets crazier? Yes, dude. That is like step one fuck? of this fucking thing. That's okay. step one? Yeah. So another witness these are reported. People, these people make laws. They make fucking and laws. And they're fucking, they're, God, he's acting like a fucking middle schooler. Yeah. And they don't even have the decency to call it fisticuffs. If you're going to challenge someone on the house floor, you have to call it fisticuffs. <laughs> Okay, so another witness reported, quote, they were in each other's faces, basically nose to nose, and Swalwell says something like, are we really going to do this? Which is amazing. <laughs> like, you come in, And McCarthy responds. Yeah, that, that's what I'd be thinking, too. Like, did, are you seriously fucking threatening me in, co- in like, the Capitol? <laughs> I know. Like, and, because I called you weak? Like, oh, because you know what? You know what? Uh, you know what a non- weak person mm. does if someone calls them weak they let it get under their skin to the point yep. where they threaten physical bi- violence totally yeah at their job <laughs> at their <laughs> In job front of a prime minister <laughs> okay this is where 
it gets even better. So okay. McCarthy oh, responds, call me a pussy again, and I'll kick your ass. <laughs> and Swalwell, <laughs> Swalwell looks him in the eyes and just goes, you are a pussy. <laughs> It's literally written like that in the article. U period R period A period pussy. Oh God! Did he kick his ass? Uh, no. The situation resolved itself without devolving to fisticuffs on the house chamber floor. <laughs> oh, it's I mean, amazing. You kind of just you proved his point, bro. Like, yeah. You like you're all talk. Like that's the thing. Kevin McCarthy is is all talk. All right, he, you he that can't you keep would his. Prefer <laughs> if they fought, I mean, I do not advocate for violence, <laughs> but, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, ultimately, though, <laughs> we don't even have to advocate for violence. All we have to do is say, Kevin McCarthy, like you, tell us what you want to do here. <laughs> if you're going to threaten someone, I don't know. Anyway, I just yeah. thought that was that fucking was so fucking funny that that stunned <laughs> me. I cannot believe, like we had that people calling each other pussies on the house floor, <laughs> threatening to fight. Oh, so amazing, so amazing. Uh, and I mean, it's again, it you clearly struck a nerve with Kevin McCarthy because mm-hmm. he truly is a pathetic man. Like yeah. he is, I like. I remember when we used to we used to make fun of Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. um, but honestly, he showed more strength than Kevin McCarthy ever has. Mm-hmm. Like Kevin McCarthy has been completely sycophantic towards Trump. Every single time he, like every single time he pretends like he's going to take a stance on something, he immediately backtracks because he's afraid mm-hmm. of what the extremists in his party are going to do. Um, like I just I don't know why, but I keep getting tweets from him or exes or whatever the whatever the fuck they're called now, uh, of him saying like you know oh look at this thing that Hunter Biden did or look at this thing that the corrupt Biden family did and I'm like look you know what if I agree that the Biden family is has you know is corrupt like I've we've talked about that on the pod before most politicians are corrupt but like you like you criticize them for you know uh nepotism in terms of the law or you know in terms of getting a good deal in terms of the law and you actively defend trump for sending a violent mob to like to to storm you to to mm-hmm. storm the fucking chamber that you work in mm-hmm. I don't think that any other word could be more appropriate for for Kevin McCarthy than weak. He is a weak, pathetic human being, and clearly, uh, Swalwell struck a nerve with him. Yeah, I mean, if if like people try to fire me fifteen times, uh, I'd probably be pretty <laughs> sensitive about it too. <laughs> yeah, and so you know that... what, Kevin McCarthy, I know that you're listening because you're a huge fan of the show. Huge fan. Huge I just fan. called you weak. What the fuck are you gonna do about it? So that is a miscellaneous what the fuck. All right, so now we will end our show as we usually do 
with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that I, and I, I mean, I kind of alluded to it last week, but I, I had a, I had a river vacation with my family, uh, with my, my parents and my brother and his girlfriend and my wife. And it was just so nice. Mm. It was so nice to kind of have one last hurrah this summer, um, before, uh, the mad rush to get everything ready to start classes again. And I'm look, I'm looking forward to starting classes again, but it was nice to just relax for a week and spend some time with the family. That's awesome, dude. That's great to hear. Yeah. What about you, Mike's? What's, what's your highlight? Um, I think my highlight this week is, um, well, actually work today was pretty good. We've got this like little, like internal, like award that we have on our team quarterly. Um, and I got it this quarter, which was awesome. It was really nice. It was nice. like, uh, I was like nominated and selected to get the award. So that's, that's pretty nice. Congrats, so, dude. Thanks, dude. Well, well earned. Well, well, it's, you're uh, smart. you're, you're a smart guy. The capitalist situation, uh, trying to not pay me <laughs> in, in the stead. Well, I mean, they pay me, but you know what I mean? <laughs> trying to pay me less and get me to work and be dedicated anyway. Um, uh, but you know, we don't have to go down that trail. <laughs> so thank you to all of the people that make this show possible our amazing patrons jerry deviller kyle chaska fade out scoop taylor bloom and tobias jansen and thank you to our incredible editor kayla for all they do to make this show possible and thank you dear listener for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again 